Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for this, especially in light of the confusion in our society that has bled into the church and that has affected the way that we view the offices of the church and especially its leaders as to what temperament they are to have, what disposition and how they are to respond to false teaching and false teachers the nature of what it even means to be a pastor. We thank you that your Spirit has given us such clarity and that all we as your people need do is acknowledge that your Word is true and commit to following it. But as simple as this is, Lord, it requires great fortitude and we pray for that. We understand that our strength comes from you and not from us. And we pray for your strength to apply these things in this lost and dying world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, What Luke has for us today could not be more relevant to us today. So many questions about ministerial approaches and attitudes and the character of church leaders and, frankly, Christians in general are answered by the forthcoming and account. And in addition to all of this, we are going to get to see God win in a profound way yet again. Now, for the sake of time, I will forego any additional introduction, and for the sake of context, we're going to start back in verse 1, and then we will slow down to exegete and apply once we hit new territory in verse 4. Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to the Cyprus. Now, first we need to note that Saul and Barnabas are not only missionaries set apart by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has also defined entirely the nature of their mission. Backing up to verse 3, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So it is not their work. And they also will not need to search the stars or uh, engage in some other exercise of profound spiritual discernment to understand its nature. The work 
has already been determined by the Spirit, and He will guide them into it. They will acknowledge the Lord in all their ways, and He will direct their paths with respect to this critical work. Now again in verse 4, though, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, So to use that term given to us in chapter 12 and verse 25, they are once more on mission. And so we all need to pay very close attention to what comes next if we want to understand the nature of Christian mission. And spoiler alert, what comes next is the preaching of the gospel and the making of disciples. It is nothing less, and just as important for us in our context, it is also nothing more. Now, modern evangelicals, you may have noticed, they love this term missional. It's on their T-shirts, it's on their ball caps, it's on their bumper stickers. They are very fond of it indeed. And I think the reason for this is that it suggests mystique and danger. And they, being Christless themselves and in churches that don't preach the gospel, live vapid lives devoid of meaning in the same way that the people in the world writ large do. And so they find a little intrigue to add excitement. And they enjoy this and they appreciate this. But ultimately, their concept of missional is just a grab bag full of pragmatism. It's events and programs and more events and more programs. And this week I was considering the fact that Rome was known for its festivals, ancient Asia Minor in general, um, festivals, events, some benign, some absolutely wicked. We will actually take note of one that was wicked in our study today relative to a location that we're going to encounter in the text. But Rome, in fact, uh, relative to the events of Acts, would soon construct the world's greatest event venue ever, which would, of course, be the Colosseum. And yet even though the apostles existed in this context and the Christian faith developed In this milieu, the apostles never sought to borrow from this approach. They never put on their own events of this kind in order to attract people. Yet the visible church today literally would not know how to occupy their days without such distractions. They would all just sit around and say, what do we do now? If these things were stripped away from them. In fact, we've had people come to this church many times who've had great difficulty adjusting to a situation where every aspect of the Christian life is not scheduled for them with unbiblical programming that's designed to keep them busy with no benefit to Christ's kingdom. This sort of thing was not a substitute for genuine Christian culture in their day. It is not a substitute for it in our day either. But there are often even some venerable pursuits that are called missional that really are not. Uh, Lydia had a conversation, for example, with a young woman a long time ago who said that she was a missionary when, in fact, she was a schoolteacher overseas who taught the children of the missionaries who were there. Is that a good thing? If she's a good teacher, it's a good thing. Is it missions work according to Scripture? No. Strictly speaking, it is not. We must speak strictly when we are talking about terms that are defined by God. Another example that is... uh, falsely given this description is building trips. And I've been on many. I've built many church buildings across the country. Those were building trips. They were not missions trips. And I hope that those church buildings are being used 
for the work of the gospel. But in any event, I was not there acting as a missionary. The Lord's work, sure. Serving the Lord, absolutely. Soup kitchens is another example. That sort of service, but without the gospel. These things are not missions work. Now, all of them can be good things. And in isolation are good things. But they are not gospel things, and thus they're not our things, and therefore they are not for us good things. When a secular organization feeds the homeless as an end to itself, or teaches school children, or builds buildings for some actually laudable charity, we say, oh, that's good, and indeed it is. But understand that what is good for them is not good for us, because it's not within our mission's parameters. And this is in keeping with the military's use of the term. If you have a soldier that comes back from war, his term of duty has been completed, and he uh, gives of his time to go feed the homeless, that's a good thing, isn't it? What if he leaves his post in order to do that? Is that a good thing? No, no, he's going to be court-martialed in our system. And if he did that in ancient Rome, he would be a lot worse off than that. Now, these two worlds can be merged. That of... uh, material nurture and spiritual nurture but if they are they have to you have to have this done in a very specific sort of a way this has to aid gospel ministry it cannot hinder it and it certainly must not alter our message or silence us altogether jesus fed the masses because he gave them the gospel and they'd been there for a long time but it was always in conjunction and when he healed it was always as a as a platform For the gospel, same thing with the apostles. We, at the fair, very soon, we will give literal water so that we might have a greater opportunity to give that message of living water. I have personally ladled out a lot of soup at homeless shelters. I have handed out many thousands of articles of clothing, but I did that after I preached the actual biblical gospel. It was a means to an end, that material provision. It was not the end in and of itself. Because that's not my mission. And that's the greater point that you need to not miss. Missional, as we have observed it in Acts and as we will observe it, is not an ambiguous concept. It is very narrowly fixed upon Christ and Him crucified and risen on the third day, the message of which produces converts, and then through God's Word, we teach those converts how to be disciples. And that is not my definition. It is the definition. It is the only one. If at least Scripture is to be your guide and not the society in which we live. And parents need to be aware of this as well. We send our children, for example, to a barely Christian school. If I had a better option, I would send them there. I don't send them there because they're spot on in terms of theology. Indeed, they are not but rather because they understand basic biology, which is sadly the standard of our day. Okay, but they apparently have this mission strip that they're going to facilitate. If my children were ever to ask if they could go on one of these, my answer would come down to something along the lines of snowball's chance in hell. Because, first off, they're going to hear a false gospel, and that's the most important thing. And secondly, it will create much confusion about what missions work actually is because so much of what they do is just humanitarian aid, misnamed. We need to have clarity on this issue as the apostles 
had clarity. But with this current mission in our text, not only is the mission established, but the mission field as well. And so first, they are off to Seleucia, really as a launching point to Cyprus. Now, Seleucia is an Antiochian port on the Orontes River, and they have either arrived here by foot or by boat, we are not told, but certainly they are sailing to Cyprus by boat, as the text makes clear, which was ultimately their destination. Now, Cyprus is in an extremely uh, sensible place for these men to start. Going back to chapter 4, we learn that this was Barnabas's hometown, his place of birth, so he knows the lay of the land well here, and he probably has access to resources such as lodging family members and friends that he grew up with. This is also a good place because it has a mix of Gentiles and Jews, and so they are able to evangelize both, and in keeping with the pattern thus far, they begin preaching to the Jews in the Cyprian city of Salamis. Verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. So, as promised, missions work is simply proclaiming the word of God and making disciples. And if it ain't that, it ain't that. But take note also of the inclusion of John Mark, who is serving here in some capacity. We are not told specifically. You can assume ministerial in nature, uh, directly ministerial preaching, uh, discipling, things of, of that kind. But he is also, of course, the author of the Gospel of Mark. He is a cousin to Barnabas, which we learn of, I believe, in Colossians. And he will, in a future lesson, become a key figure in the direction that these missionaries are going to take. But moving forward in the text, they will now take the gospel to a leader of the Gentiles. Verses 6 and 7, when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So first, a little geography. Cyprus is the third largest island in the Mediterranean. It was about 100 miles and is about 100 miles long and 60 miles wide. It had then two major cities. One was Salamis. That was the place that they started in. And now they have uh, arrived in Paphos, which is a second major city. And Paphos was a wicked place. It was home to a Syrian deity whose name I doubt you know, but name is the same as a city, Paphos. However, you might know this deity by its Greek name, which was Aphrodite, or its Roman name, which was Venus. And because of this, Paphos was home to a three-day festival called Aphrodisia, and if it, sa- if it strikes you rather that Aphrodisia sounds a bit like Aphrodisiac, that's not a coincidence. That speaks to the nature of the celebration that occurred there. It was debauchery. But while in this wicked place, they find a wicked man. And he is a Jewish diviner because this fellow evidently likes his monotheism with a side of paganism. And this gentleman's name is Bar-Jesus. Now, as students of the Bible, what does the prefix Bar mean? Barnabas, it means son of encouragement. Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John. And so here this gentleman is called Son of Jesus, son of Yeshua then, son of Joshua, son of salvation. And why is he called this? He's called this because Satan names everything the opposite of what that thing actually is. So this gentleman is exactly as much a son of salvation 
as, say, gender-affirming care actually affirms gender. Nevertheless, Bar-Jesus is an important advisor to the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now, Sergius is stationed on Paphos because Paphos is also the seat of provincial government for the Roman Empire on the southwest coast. And according to the text, he's in this position because he is no dummy. Verse 7 again, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So this fellow is a seeker. He is not a seeker in the Arminian sense because there are no seekers in the Arminian sense. Nobody seeks God. But many men do seek a knowledge of God and then through that seeking, God will seek some of them. And so it's not that any of us have sought the Most High for His sake. And that holds true for Sergius, but he is curious. As an academic, as a man of intellect, as a citizen of Rome, as a leader in Rome, and as a man who is privy to all the world's religious theories, but is evidently still not settled on one. And so apparently he hears the representatives of the way, or as we are now being called, Christians, that we have come to town, two of us at least, and thus he asks them if they can come and scratch an intellectual and perhaps also spiritual itch for him. Uh, so we might identify this man then, some, in modern speak, as something of an agnostic. But also understand that having soothsayers and diviners and spiritual teachers around of various different kinds in order to gain an advantage over his enemies or just rule better in general was common to Roman rulers. And in fact, even using religious figures who melded Judaism with paganism was common. Felix, for example, employed a Jewish sorcerer. Vespasian had a syncretistic Jewess on the payroll. Tiberius had an astrologer. Nero even had a similar figure. So Sergius is following this tradition of seeking spiritual wisdom from those who purport to possess it, that he may then use this to govern more effectively or make himself more prosperous. But we should pause here and ask, how did this man know to seek out Paul and Barnabas in order to hear about Christ from them? Well, the answer that we must intuit is because Paul and Barnabas were preaching the gospel elsewhere and the Roman proconsul heard about it. So here is a principle for you, Christian. Opportunities to serve Christ are most often given to those who serve Christ most often. And going back to the teenager mission strip thing, this is why I almost never support this sort of thing. And I only say almost, because maybe in a universe of infinite possibilities at some future point, I would if it actually met biblical criteria, so I'm going to leave the door open like this much. But I have actually never supported this sort of thing. There are many reasons, but one of which is I'm not going to financially support people to go and do a work overseas that they are not doing here. Opportunities taken or made should beget opportunities given. But if you are doing this work actively, then I assure you, you will soon find greater opportunities presenting themselves as they have here. Well, for example, you witness to this person at work or that person, and they think you're a religious quack, and they tell somebody else after that fact that you didn't even speak to directly about these things, that you are, in fact, a religious weirdo. But then that person comes up against some hardship in their life. They lose somebody that they loved, or they experience some other difficulty. And who do they come to? They come to you because they know that you are religious. 
and they're hoping that maybe you have some answer that will help them go through whatever issue it is that they're dealing with. So there is a spillover effect if you are faithful. Paul and Barnabas just gave the gospel, and they gave the gospel to whom they naturally had access, and then the Holy Spirit used this to give them access to one that they did not have natural access to, and that was a ruler in Rome. So if I may be frank with you, I would evangelize, I just don't have the opportunities to, is always a lie that has never been true. If you were truly that isolated, you wouldn't be able to survive. Okay, you'd be on like a desert island and you would die quickly because you wouldn't have anybody to interact with in order to gain material goods from. But you do have to gain material goods. You do live and exist in a world. So let it never be said that you don't have opportunities. You do. They are all around you every day. If you're not availing yourself of those things, that's another issue and an issue over which you need to repent. But moving forward, these curiosities and the faithfulness of Paul and Barnabas are ultimately going to bring Sergius to Christ, not because of him, not because of them, but because of the Lord Jesus, and in spite of Satan through Bar-Jesus attempting to snatch away the seed of the gospel. Verse 8, but Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them. So this is Bar-Jesus, same guy, we're just going from the Hebrew Uh, designation to the Greek name. But continue with me, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Oh, full stop here. I need you to really focus. I need you to really think. What is Elimus, a.k.a. Bar-Jesus? Who is he? What is he actually doing? Is he merely confused? Is he sincere but mistaken? Is he acting in good faith but just wrong and therefore in need of a gentle touch and gentle correction in order to bring him back? Well, he is mistaken to be sure. Uh, To what extent is he deceived? I, I don't know. Versus deceiving intentionally? You don't know that either. That cannot be known. But what can be known is that he is here doing what he's doing with the effect of damning Sergius damning his eternal soul to eternal torment. The same is true of anybody and everyone that he is teaching, which would make him then guilty of spiritual genocide. So this man, as we encounter him in the text, is a mass murderer of souls. Now let me ask you a seemingly unrelated question. Do you like stories of Germans and Jews who stood their ground against the Nazis, who did not just as they say, whistle past the graveyard or perhaps more accurately, the gas chambers. Do you like these stories? Is there something fundamental to your nature as an image bearer of God that celebrates the way that even as unbelievers, these people in these accounts uniquely reflect the image of God in which they were created? Does the contrast between the light of their courage against the darkness in this event of the Nazis' evil incite righteous passions in you? Certainly it does. It does for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike. This is why movies about that period and about World War II and all the things that happened and books remain an enormous genre is 85 years later. But when you watch these movies, do you have any moral misgivings when you see in one of them a Nazi who's murdering Jews, who presently has a knife to the throat of one, and then in comes a member of the Allied Forces? say an American, and he puts him down. Do you have any qualms about that? 
in your heart and in your soul? Or do you understand it to be exclusively good? You understand it to be exclusively good because you understand that the Nazis represented a rare kind of evil. But when you are in a church and somebody comes in trying to murder eternal souls, do you feel the same? Or are there all kinds of equivocations? Are you unable to recognize that what you see in this passage has become your reality right in front of you and must be dealt with accordingly? Or are you unable to discern that what you read of in passages such as this is happening right in front of you? Because many are. And whether it's the result of not acknowledging the truth because you don't want to have to take the steps necessary to deal with it or whatever it is, for some reason evangelicals in our day can read these things in our Bibles all day long but still not read them as they play out in our actual context. This church has dealt with this sort of thing multiple times in the last seven years. And one particular instance comes to mind now and it would just so happen that you alluded to it in CE hour. I had a gentleman come in. And l let me remind you of what I have already stated. I've become much more specific as time has gone on in the ministry because I recognize that people have an incredible ability to uh, not recognize to be blind to circumstances that are happening in their own uh, setting. And so unless they're pointed out, people don't put the points together. They don't connect the dots. So that's why I'm doing this. But this gentleman, he comes in and he, he loves a certain Calvinistic preacher. It's, it's Paul Washer. Loves, Cal, loves Paul Washer. Um, loves the style, loves the content of his messages, and uh, you know we start talking, and I say, well, have you have you read uh, Ten Indictments Against the Modern Church? It was in a sermon form as well. I said, you know, I haven't modeled anything after Paul Washer, but you're not going to find a church that does that more straight down the line. And he goes, oh, good. But then as time comes, uh, time goes on, he becomes increasingly unsettled by the doctrines of grace. And I say to him, I say, we can talk about this anytime you want. I'm here to have a sit down with you and I explain what I have explained to all of you and made clear from the beginning. You don't have to be a five-pointer. You can be a semi-Pelagian and be a member of the church. You cannot be a teacher. But if you're inconsistent, we're not going to put you out. You'd be uncomfortable here because of the way that I preach, but we would certainly allow that. And I explain that to him. You can be a semi-Pelagian. You can be an Amaraldian, as they are called. You can be a five-pointer as we are. But you know, funny thing, he never took me up on my offer to have a conversation with him. What he did do in the meantime, though, was go to three or four men in the congregation and seek to turn them. Now, by the grace of God, he was a very poor debater and very bad at defending his own position. And by the grace of God, the men that he tried to do this to were very well grounded because in this church, again, by the grace of God, I do not preach about whatever blockbuster movie is in the theaters and exegete points from it. We teach doctrine and we know our doctrine. We know our Bibles. And so he was unsuccessful. But that is this. That was this. That is not the only example of it. It happens and you need to be aware of it. Lest you give the devil a foothold where he must not have one. Now having 
not yet read Paul's response to this false teacher. In Galatians 1, what fate did Paul desire and prescribe for false teachers? Do you recall? Let them be anathema. Let them be accursed to everlasting torment if they preach a gospel contrary to the one that you have received. Let these in similitude, whether, whether he was thinking this way or not, but in, in similitude to Levitical law, received the same punishment that they tried to get others to receive. Let them receive hell. Well, so given that, how do you think he's going to respond to this fellow here? Verse 9, But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, before we get to what he said, let me just say here in passing, that I am happy to say that as one exegeting through this book, I no longer have to say Saul slash Paul or specify in any way. We have made the transition. All right, Paul is the apostle's Roman name, and because he is now dealing with the Gentiles, it has become more appropriate for him to use that than it is for him to use the name Saul. Well, we must also stop here again, as we did with Peter and Stephen, and recognize that the Holy Spirit in Scripture is not the greeting card maternal figure that he's commonly represented as in our day. Again, I say to you that he's not opposed to the wrath of the judgment of God, and of course he would not be because he is the Holy Spirit of God, and denying any aspect of God's character would also be a denial of his own character. But here you have the Holy Spirit specifically motivating what comes next out of the mouth of Paul who says, quote, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now, pardon me, it does feel strange to let out a chuckle here, given the gravity of what is occurring. But I must acknowledge that this is somewhat humorous, if you're really paying attention. And I, I don't believe that Luke doesn't know this, so I can't be blamed for simply pointing it out. But the, the gentleman's title was Bar-Jesus, correct? So what did Paul just call him? Bar meaning son of Jesus. What did he call him? Bar-Satan. You son of the devil. But irony aside, I want you to consider for a moment who Paul is. And what that demonstrates about this kind of a strong response that is to be issued to false teachers outside of the church as here and inside of the church as was the case in Galatia. What I'm going to do here with you is give you a list of descriptive terms and attributes. And all of these are present in all of the apostles to varying degrees. But I do think that you will agree with me that they are uniquely present in just one. So here they are and I'm going to give them to you in two categories. In the first category though we have academic, scholarly, luminary, erudite, nuanced in his handling of Christian doctrine and theology, balanced in his thinking, possessing a systematic mind. That's the first category. But he is also transparent, compassionate, humble, meek, selfless, empathetic. Have I not just described in a special way Paul? In the first category, this is a titan of Christian doctrine like there never has been another except the Lord Jesus himself. And if you've read Romans, you know this. But if you have also read Romans, you know that in Romans 7, he is transparent as none of the other apostles ever are. And in the Corinthian epistles, the same thing. Chief of sinners, 
You don't get that from other people. First John is the book that you go to to read to find out that you're probably not a Christian. Okay? The book of Romans is the book that you go to to find out where the rubber meets the road on what this sanctification thing actually looks like in real time. That is Paul. Cerebral as he is heartfelt. And so what is my point? Well, the point is that in Paul we learn, as perhaps we can with no other apostolic example, that confronting Satan in this kind of direct way is an essential aspect of the calling to be a minister and not a reflection of any man's personality. Oh, but of course, John spoke strongly. He was, after all, a son of thunder. And of course, Peter did. That was just a part of his personality. But can anyone accuse Paul of being harsh by nature, brash and unrefined? I don't think so. In fact, it would seem that after his conversion, he softened to the extreme. Well, indeed, before that, he was a very hard man. But afterwards, that heart of stone was made very, very soft. Paul was nobody who relished in recognizing the presence of demons in others. He was the author of Love Believes All Things and Hopes All Things. So when you hear somebody say of a certain minister, or if you hear the man himself say of himself, anything like, well, that kind of confrontation just isn't what a minister should be doing, or, or maybe instead, and this is more subtle, more insidious, I think, as well, well, that's just not the nature of my ministry. It's good for others to do all that rebuking stuff, but I'm really more of an academic and more of a lover and not a fighter. Just know that this man is simply a derelict and a coward. And he should step down or he should be defrocked immediately. And in fact, to do this to this man would not only be a great mercy to those who sit under his ministry, it would also be a great mercy to him. As he will soon and very soon stand before the Lord Jesus and try to give an account for why it was that he did not love him enough to defend his own nature and his gospel. The truth is that this sort of thinking is just simply not in keeping with the biblical definition of a pastor. So many of our issues go back to the fact that we don't actually understand biblical definitions or what terms mean. Missions was an example, and we've already gone through that, but here's another. Pastor. This is the moniker most often used to describe the Christian minister in our day, and we don't even know what it is. Let's look here first to the, to the other biblical terms, and we'll have this filled out for us in pastor. Man in the pulpit is also known as an elder, and some of you do call us that, and you're right to. And in fact, this is the most common name for the office in Scripture. Acts 11, verse 30, 1 Timothy 5, 17, many other places. We're also overseers. 1 Peter 2.25, translated as guardians or watchmen as of souls. Several times we are described as ones who govern. Hebrews 13.7.17.24, we are stewards of the work of God. Luke 12.42, we are depicted as spiritual parents. 1 Timothy 3.4-5, but then we have shepherd slash teacher. Ephesians 4.11 and just shepherd more generally, Acts 20, 28, Ephesians 4, 11, 1 Peter 5, 2. 
And it is really that last concept that we are evoking when we call a man a pastor. The term in Greek is poimen. The Latin is pastor, and we have retained that in English. It means shepherd. Shepherd. But what is the function of a shepherd? Well, it's expounded well in John 10 of the good shepherd, which I am not. The shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. That's the nature of the good shepherd. And also in Psalm 23, what is the situation that's happening there? Well, you have the sheep, and they're in one pasture, and they're being taken to another pasture, and therefore they must pass through the valley because there is water there, but it's also a dangerous place because in the crags, in the caves, there are predators. Thus it is the valley of the shadow of death. And why are they comforted as they walk through that place? Because of the rod and the staff. They know that should a predator jump out as they do and tear down towards one of them and many of them, the shepherd's going to take his rod and he's going to beat that thing to death. And if he can't, he will offer up himself to get eaten instead. We are not the good shepherd, but we are his under-shepherds. And we are called that because we are to act in this office in a manner consistent with his care of his people. And that is how God's people are to understand what it means to be a pastor. So why is it then that we bifurcate these two aspects of shepherding, being compassionate care and defense against predators, and then we just throw out all that stuff about defending against predators? Not because Satan has castrated us that he might have his way with Christ's church. And he has done this by convincing us that we ought to be nice guys. And we ought to put nice guys in the pulpit, kind and compassionate. These are Christian virtues. This whole thing about nice is not. And to help bring this home to you, are you familiar with the events that occurred somewhat recently in Uvalde, Texas? I did not know that Uvalde, Texas existed. did not know the name of that town prior to a school shooting that occurred there. You remember this? Little children were massacred inside while the police officers stayed outside for a very long period of time while those children and those teachers called the police department and begged for someone to come in and save them. And what was the reason given that they did not enter the building? It was a threat to their safety. I don't know that you understand what it is that you signed up for. In fact, I think they did. I think they're just wicked and cowardly. Here, let me give you another illustration though beyond this say that you have a man and he goes out for a night on the town with his wife they're a married couple and he is uh, by nature more of an academic a lover and not a fighter but another man comes up and i'll leave it vague he despoils the virtue of this man's wife and he does it right in front of him and it's not that the man fights the good fight and he loses because he's, you know, not an imposing physical figure. He doesn't fight at all. Do you say of this man, do you justify his actions with, well, you know, he's a lover, not a fighter. He's an academic type. He's a scholar. Do you do that with the police officers who let that happen in Uvalde? I don't think that you do. I think you find them repugnant and their response to be vile. And rightly so. For similar reasons, differences in personality and disposition do not excuse a pastor who allows his sheep to get eaten 
or allows a man to blaspheme the Lord that he claims to love. And we will see yet the good fruit of Paul's faithfulness, but now look to the immediate judgment of Bar-Jesus via Paul. Verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time, and immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Now at this point, when I was studying this, I had a strange and inexplicable sense of deja vu. Here is a false teacher committed to the overthrow of Christianity, or at least in this instance, presenting, preventing, rather, its spread from threatening his power. And even as he is in the throes of rebellion against Jesus, Jesus strikes him blind in this event through one of his servants, and then he has to be led around by the hand by others. And I still cannot place what it is that this reminds me of, but I'll get to it eventually. At any rate, here is the outcome of all of this. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And there is here no reason to believe that this is a spurious faith that we often see in the Gospels. By all appearances, this man is now a convert. And what makes me believe that this is indeed authentic faith is that it did not result from a miracle alone, even though one was performed. What was the foundation of his faith, really, according to the text? Again, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, so the miracle is there, it's present, it's a part of the uh, calculus, but being amazed at the teaching of the Lord, his doctrine that has saved his soul. So what perhaps began as the desire to scratch an intellectual itch has apparently ended with the salvation of this man's eternal soul. And this is a result of Paul standing his ground. Does this help you understand? Does this remind you once more what is at stake with Sergius and with all of us? Now, is the primary motivation for fidelity to Christ the conversion of sinners? No. No, and it must never be. It must never be. The primary motivation for a man in all things must be to glorify God and to be faithful to Christ for his own sake. It must flow out of love. It must be love for Christ. Because if not, when the result is not the conversion of anybody, as will often be the case, you will capitulate. The result that we seek is the glory of God. Any other result beyond that, though we desire it, and though we would bleed to make it happen and give our lives to make it happen, is not in our hands. And is not ultimately our concern. The Lord will do what He will do, but we are to preach to His glory and leave those other results to Him. But this steadfast refusal to compromise or to soft-pedal evil is what the Lord often uses to call the sheep who are still outside of the fold into it. This is what the minister's attitude is to be, and indeed the attitude of every single Christian. Consequences and personal reputation be damned if that's what the Lord will use to make it so that sinners are not. And if you are outside of the fold now, then it is my great privilege to call you to enter it by faith and repentance. Here is the true gospel that has been preserved through men like Paul for the last two millennia. It is that you are not good. 
You are a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And He is angry with you every day. But in His Son, He poured out His wrath, rendering Almighty God pure and true, never sinned a day in His life, not for an instant, never even in thought, made Him a vessel of wrath on behalf of poor sinners just like you. And if you would cry out to Him in sincerity, then He would come to you. And you would be His child and He would be your God. And because Christ was made a vessel of wrath, you can become a vessel of mercy. And why is today not that day? Why is today not that day? That you bow to that message that has been preserved down through the ages by a God who will not let the gospel be compromised. Let it bear fruit in you. Turn to the mercy and the grace of God and receive the reward that was purchased for you by the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to glean wonderful things from your word. We thank you that you have loved us. We thank you that you have given us this great gift. And we thank you, Father, that we have the testimony of mere men who are constituted just as we are, who did not bend, who did not cave. And Lord, help us in our leg of this relay race to pass the baton to the next generation as we ought in faithfulness, having not compromised. Help us to deliver this faith to our children in a better state than we received it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Illyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.